the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. One factor that keeps many investors away from cryptos is the massive drawdowns in coins like Ethereum and Bitcoin. Drawdowns of 70% or more from market top to bottom are just a little too painful for some. Well, it seems there is a better way. Adopting a fund of funds approach, blending lower risk with higher risk crypto funds, Amphibian, based out of the United States, evaluated more than 200 crypto quant funds and settled on 13 of them. The result? An 84% gain in 2021 and a 10% positive return in the first half of 2022. This is while many other crypto funds were down and some of them horribly down. It recently launched an Ethereum fund with returns calculated not in US dollars, but in ETH, which is the native token of the Ethereum blockchain. The main concern for most institutional investors is avoiding the kind of drawdowns that retail investors have seen over the last nine months. Well, joining us to discuss this is Ryan Alice, publisher of CoinStack and general partner at Amphibian Capital. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. I'm quite interested to hear about your investment approach, your overall objective being to minimize drawdowns and achieve positive growth. The two funds I mentioned in the intro are relatively new, but both delivered positive gains during what was quite a brutal market downturn. How is that possible? Well, it's wonderful to be here today. And if crypto is known for one thing, it's known for volatility. And when you're investing in tokens directly like Bitcoin or Ether or Solana or Avalanche, you're going to have to stomach 50, 60, 70, 80 percent drawdowns. Uh, Bitcoin was down 59 percent in the first half of 2022. Uh, and that's just normal. That's just par for the course in a very volatile early stage high growth space. And so what I do is I work with a fund. I'm a general partner at a fund called Amphibian Capital based here in the United States. And we have a diversified portfolio of 13 crypto funds that we have spent the last year vetting and selecting. And as you mentioned, those 13 funds averaged net after fees, uh, an average of 84% positive net returns last year. And we're up in the first half of this year in 2022 as well, about 10%. And so what we're designing is a portfolio that allows accredited investors and institutional investors to be able to uh, ideally avoid these big drawdowns that are common in crypto. Okay. I think one of the things that people may be struggling to understand is how you achieve a return like that. Because if you look at Bitcoin and Ethereum, and in fact, the entire universe of cryptos, they were down, some of them even 90%. And I sat in on a presentation that you did a week ago, and it's clear that you're able to smooth that out a little bit by investing in different kinds of crypto funds, one of them being arbitrage. Is that correct? Yes, there's a few different types of crypto trading funds. Some of you may have heard of the book, The Man Who Solved the Market, about Jim Simons, the, the trader at the famous quant fund Renaissance Technologies based in New York City. In the 1980s, uh, he pioneered the quantitative trading space in the equities, futures, and commodities markets. And between 1988 and 2020, his premier, premier fund, the Medallion Fund, averaged 39% 
annual net returns for their investors. And it got so successful that they had to limit it to just their partners and employees investing alone. And they kicked out all the other investors. Now, there are funds, in fact, many dozens of them that have been searching for this holy grail in crypto and to apply these same statistical models that utilize price, volume, linear regression, um, and correlation to be able to predict mathematically using machine learning and algorithms when these digital assets, these cryptocurrencies are going to go up, when they're going to go sideways, and when they're going to go down. And so what we are at Amphibian is a crypto quant fund of funds. And these funds are, are called long short funds. And what that means is they're able to, if their algorithms are tuned properly, generate positive returns in good markets and in bad markets. Anyone can make 84% in a bull market like we had in 2021. You know, Bitcoin was up about 50 or 60% last year. Um, anyone can make 80% in that market. But the real question is, is when Bitcoin's down 59 or 60%, like it was in the first half of this year, you know, can you still be up? And so what we did is we vetted 250 firms. We researched that many. We went deep with about 50 of them. And then we put all of their past fact sheets and historical results going back to 2019 into our master database. And then we selected the best funds based on which ones were up last year and which ones were up this year, even in the challenging first half of 2022. So that's that's how we selected this diversified portfolio of crypto funds. And uh, I can go deeper on the different types of trading, but you're right. There's arbitrage trading, which is um, being able to utilize small differences between, let's say, the price of Ethereum in uh, South Korea versus the price of Ethereum in South Africa. You know, maybe there's a $5, $10 difference and those trading funds will uh, be able to uh, send the Ethereum from one exchange to another and pocket the difference in very large quantities to be able to provide market making services. Um, there's OTC trading desk, over the counter trading desks that sell crypto to large buyers and uh, fix the price for them in, in order to allow large buyers to buy more than what is available in, in that moment on the markets. And then they take a small percentage for that. Um, there And then there are these quantitative long short funds that use predictive algorithms and uh, models to be able to know when to buy and sell. And those are the ones that we have most in our portfolio. And those are the ones that have performed the best in the first half of this year. Uh, just drill down a little bit on the uh, the artificial intelligence aspect of this. You're basically taking bets on the direction of the market, whether long or short. And how accurate are those? Um, and are they in for fairly long periods of time, fairly short periods of time? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, there's um, everything in between. We, we have funds that will make hundreds of trades per week. Uh, we have trades that will only make uh, four or five trades per month uh, and, and everything in between. So we're not really talking about high frequency trading. Um, we're not really talking about, you know, making thousands of trades a day. Um, we're, we're generally talking about funds that um, might make somewhere between, you know, five and a thousand trades a month, some, some, something in that order of magnitude. And um what what you know the artificial intelligence is a broad field the specific subsector of ai that we're talking about here is called machine learning 
And what machine learning does is it can utilize these supercomputers to pull in a data set. You could take, let's call it the one minute window or the one minute price um, for each of the, um, say, top 100 cryptocurrencies out there. And you can get this data supplied to you from enterprise grade data providers that have the one minute candles going back, you know, four, five, six years on all these digital digital currencies. And then what you do is you look to you use the computer to do two things. First, you find all the patterns. You know, if this happens, then there's a 83 percent probability that this is going to happen next. So you find all the correlations. You find um, everything that sort of tracks together. So that's the first thing. You find all the patterns. Um, and then the second thing that you do is you teach the computer to learn. Um, and that's something that, um, you know, wasn't around in the 1980s and 1990s. Then then they were they just had the ability to create algorithms. And then they had to sort of use statistical models to fit the algorithms. And the algorithms were, in many cases, designed by humans and, and mathematicians. Now we have algorithms that are designed, in fact, by the computers themselves. And these models get better as they get more data and as they get more um, information fed into the system. And so the most successful funds we've found are using um, uh, systemic models, programmatic um, systemic trading, using machine learning to continually update their knowledge of what to invest in and when. And do the stats bear this out, that through machine learning, the results are actually improving with time? Well, that's certainly what we've seen. You know, you know, we we, we invest in a few different types of funds. Uh, our, our worst performing fund in the first half of 2022, uh, when we looked back at the data, uh, was up uh, 5%, uh, excuse me, 4%. That was our worst performing fund, was positive 4% among the 13 we selected. Um, you know, that was that was a, a yield fund, a, a DeFi yield fund that lends out stable coins and gets, a, you know, maybe a half a percent to a percent per month in net return. Um, and then the best performing fund that we had in the first half of this year was up 65 percent. Uh, and, and these are all net numbers after all the fees. And so that's pretty incredible to be up 65 percent when everything else was down 50, 60, 70 percent. Uh, we saw uh, Pantera's fund uh, in the first half of the year was down, I believe it was 75%. Arca's fund was down 85% in the first half of this year. They're, they're liquid token funds. So to be able to be up you know, 65% when everything else was down that amount was, was quite impressive um, and allowed us to want to go deeper. And ultimately, that fund is one of the 13 funds that is in our portfolio. And arbitrage as well. I mean, South Africans will be familiar with crypto arbitrage. It's become quite a, an industry in this country, basically because we have exchange controls. You're able to buy Bitcoin cheaper on an overseas exchange like Kraken, sell it in South Africa and make a net maybe one or one and a half percent per trade. So uh, people are familiar with that, but I think you're talking about something quite different. The, the thing about crypto is you don't have a centralized exchange. You have all of these different exchanges with slightly different prices, and sometimes they'll go quite a little bit out of kilter with each other. And I guess that's what you're exploiting there, or you've got systems, or your funds have systems that are able to identify these price mismatches and then go for them. That's correct. Yeah. Of the 13 funds we've selected, two or three are arbitrage funds that do exactly what you're saying, but they do it at scale. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll 
Um, as an example, uh, you know, they would take a million dollars worth of Bitcoin and, you know, move it from Seoul to, to Johannesburg uh, on the different exchanges. And, you know, just like you're saying, earn a half a percent, earn one percent. And, you know, if you can make ten thousand dollars every time you do it um, and if you can do it, you know, 20, 30, 40 times a day, it, it tends to become a pretty profitable trade. Just talk about the institutional investors. You were presenting two institutions the other day, and I guess family offices as well, or high net worth individuals. Are they beginning to warm to cryptos? Because a lot of their mandates specifically prohibit them from investing in cryptos. Well, you know, I think the the mindset of 2016, 2017, 2018 was, was certainly one that saw a lot of skepticism about digital assets initially, rightly so. I think there's a lot of um, scams, there's a lot of hacks, uh, and you really got to know what you're doing to evaluate the field of, of crypto assets and tokens. I think as we moved into 2020 and 2021, um, in the last bull market, we actually saw a, a number of very large companies getting um, involved with digital asset exposure. Uh, and we recently saw BlackRock, which is probably the one of the largest asset managers in the world with uh, trillions of dollars of assets under management, uh, partner with Coinbase and offer Coinbase's uh, Pro, which is their enterprise grade institutional crypto trading platform uh, to all of the BlackRock institutional clients. And so I, I think everyone that was sort of anti-crypto in 2017, 2018 or sort of skeptical is now seeing that. These are not just speculative assets and Ponzi schemes and scams. Yes, those do exist within the field. So you have to know what you're doing to separate the wheat from the chaff. But in fact, we have the digitization of assets. Um, in, in, in fact, many, if not all, financial assets ranging from equities to stocks to, to bonds to futures to even real estate will eventually be tokenized and will eventually trade on a distributed ledger, otherwise known as a blockchain. Um, and so I think that's the future. I think if you look ahead to 2030, 2035's global financial market, you're going to see traditional real estate and traditional equities trading on blockchains, and you're going to see um, digital currencies participating alongside fiat national currencies. Um, so I think that's the future. And I think the institutions are starting to wise up to this. And um, some of the largest institutions in the world now are getting involved. And yes, we're in the bottom of the cycle right now. So it's a great time to get in. You know, last year was the was not the right time to get in. But now it is now that, you know, let fewer people are talking about this. Um, you want to get into 2022 for the peak that's going to come in 2024, 2025. And so now's a great time. The types of funds that you invest in, we've spoken about arbitrage funds, but you mentioned another one called infrastructure funds. Maybe just unpack that. What is that? Yeah, an infrastructure fund in our terminology is a fund that provides critical um, trading infrastructure to um, other market participants. And um, we're not talking about, you know, bridges and roads. Um, we're, we're talking about the ability to do market making and to do over-the-counter trading. And so in, in crypto, because there's so many different exchanges that all have slightly different prices, um, there are uh, private funds that essentially help provide liquidity to large exchanges and, and do what's called market making. And what they'll do is they'll um, sort of uh, create additional liquidity in the order book 
And based on their own trading models, they'll take a little bit of risk and say, well, if Ether is trading at $1,800 today, we think it's going to head up over the next few days. So we'll put more depth in the order book and in the liquidity book and in essence guarantee a price for larger traders that are coming in that want to have you know, a single, let's, let's say an institution wants to put a $500 million of, of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. In order to do a trade of that size and to get it at a specific price, you need a market maker or an infrastructure uh, provider. And so if your directional models are right on which way the price is going, you can make a couple percent every time you do that. So that's what we mean by infrastructure funds. You were also the publisher of CoinStack, which is a crypto information service. And um, I think you mentioned you got you got quite a large subscriber base there. Um, tell us, how did you get into cryptos? Well, uh, you know, I think everyone has their own Bitcoin story. Uh, for me, it was 2013. I was sitting in my house in San Francisco at the time, and uh, my friends started telling me about this thing called Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin was, you know, 20, 20, 15, 20 dollars or something at the time. And I bought a Bitcoin miner for six hundred dollars. Uh, just, you know, thought it'd be something cool to play around with. Um, unfortunately, uh, and I think everyone has this type of tale. Um, I, I never plugged it in. I couldn't never got around to it. I gave it away to one of my developers, Addison, and, and he I think he plugged it in and did quite well with it. And I never really paid attention after that um, until 2017 when uh, the, the sort of first bull market happened where we had Bitcoin reach uh, 20,000 in December 2017, January 2018. And, and I started to get more involved then, made, made, made first buys of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum at that time. Um, and then in terms of when I got involved in it full time, that was 2020. Um, when when Bitcoin repassed the 20,000 level mark in December 2020, it caught my eye. I said, all right, there's something going on here. Let me, you know, I just thought this was a bunch of speculative junk. You know, let me understand what's going on here. And I realized, okay, well, there's 21 million of these Bitcoin that you can't increase that number. And, um, you know, it's sort of scarce and it's, you know, it's digital gold. Um, and it's created a decentralized global payment system that doesn't rely on any nation state or any centralized authority to give it permission to operate. This is something cool. Who knows what's, what it's going to turn into, but I got intrigued. And then when I found out about Ethereum, I read the book, uh, not just about the token, but about the actual blockchain and the technology and what makes it cool. Um, I read the book in December of 2020 by Camila Russo um, about the founding of Ethereum and um, how Ethereum got started. I'll, I'll get the title for, for it in a minute. It's just slipping my mind. And that was the book about the founding of Ethereum that I said, wow, Ethereum is a not just a distributed ledger blockchain like, block, like Bitcoin, but Ethereum is a platform that you can build applications on top of. It's a Turing complete platform that you can build any type of computer application on top of it. And then I started learning about DeFi and I said, all right, let me just write about my weekly journey trading crypto and i started writing about it every week in january of last year 19 months ago in january 2021 and that turned into uh, a newsletter initially with a few thousand readers and, and now we have 50,000 subscribers and we're the we're the largest weekly um, institutional crypto newsletter that goes out every Wednesday. We've done 90 issues now. So that, that it's been a fun organic process to see how it's gone from a hobby into a business. Well, I, I think the name of the book you're referring to is The Infinite Machine. That's right. That's You got it. You're right. correct. Yeah. Camila Russo. Yeah. 
Um, okay, interesting. So you only really got full time into into crypto in 2020. Um, you run CoinStack, and you're also a partner at Amphibian Capital. Now, if we can just go back to your fund selection process at Amphibian, selecting funds in the crypto space, it needs analytical skills that are probably not commonly found in the equity space. I guess you've got to know something about coding. You've got to know how the blockchain works. You've got to know about the blockchain architecture, things like that. These are so people who are transitioning from equity analysis to crypto analysis have got to go through quite a learning curve. Is that correct? Well, I think there's some fundamental similarities. Um, you know, I think what's interesting about um, investing in stocks and investing in digital assets is um, the 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 tokens that have cash flows. You know, the ones that provide cash flows back to their holders, like Ethereum is about to start doing in three weeks with the mer after the merge, where the the holders and stakers of Ethereum will get the daily cash flows from the transaction fees. Those are the ones that are going to be the most valuable. Um, and ultimately, the speculative assets where the cash flows aren't passed on to the holders are, are going to be the ones that ultimately, I think, will decline in value over time. So that's one of the reasons why I'm bullish on Ethereum. And so you can apply some traditional financial models like discounted cash flow. Uh, to the new version of Ethereum that's coming out, the proof of stake version of Ethereum, and to many other digital assets that actually provide cash flows to their users and to their holders. Um, so that's interesting, I think. And, and you can actually apply a lot of the traditional quantitative analysis that you would get um, vetting quant funds in equities and futures and commodities to vetting quant funds in digital assets. It's, it's all the same math. I think what's different is um, understanding the correlations requires different technology knowledge, like you mentioned. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, when Medallion Fund at Renaissance Technologies was building their quantitative models, you know, they could sort of apply some common sense to it and say, all right, well, if Coke is up 5% on the on the week, then maybe Pepsi is going to be up 3% on the week. You could sort of see similarities between different businesses and different industries. You know, if there's a, a war in the in the Gulf, uh, you know, like there was in 1991, maybe it's going to make oil shoot up. So maybe you invest in Exxon. You can sort of use some sort of um, common sense heuristics to understand why the quantitative models were doing what they're doing. In crypto, um, you know, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And so that's where you just have to turn on uh, the computer machine learning and say, go figure this out, Mr. Computer, you're smarter than us at this point. Um, and so, I, I, but I do think a lot of the, if you have a good background in math, if you have a good background in understanding blockchains, if you have a good background in statistics, um, you know, that's what's necessary to run run a crypto quant fund and, and to select crypto quant funds, which is what we do. All right, let's turn to Ethereum for a moment. You've started an e-fund that's quite new, um, but it's it's up so far this year. Oh, okay, ETH has jumped up quite a bit from its low of the last few months. Now, it requires quite a long-term view on the prospects for ETH because your fund is actually paying out returns in ETH and not in US dollars. Uh, so you seem to be pretty bullish. You've got the merge coming up in September. That is this 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 gigantic change in the whole software or the whole architecture of Ethereum. Maybe you can talk about that and why you're bullish about that. But your fund as well, people who are investing in that, would they would have to have a fairly positive view around the merge and the future of Ethereum. What's your take on this? Yes. Well, first, I want to explain how this ETH 
denominated fund works. So it is a fund of funds, which means we selected eight underlying funds. And those eight underlying funds, um, on average, after fees were up 105% in 2021. Those aren't our results as a fund. Those are the average results of the eight underlying funds you know, prior to our fund existing. Now, in 2022, which is what matters even more, how did it perform when everything else was down? Well, uh, those eight funds averaged 21.8% uh, net after fees up, up. And, you know, what that means is, you know, if you're up 21.8%, what does that mean in an ETH-denominated fund? Well, that means that had you put in 100 ETH into the investment on January 1st of 2022, and you would have left that in through the first half of 2022 to June 30th, 2022, you would have ended up with 21.8% more ETH. You would have turned 100 ETH into 121 ETH. And, you know, that's interesting. And, and so we take investments in ETH and we pay out in ETH. And if you believe, like I personally do, that Ether, the token for Ethereum, is going to be worth more in 10 years than it is today, uh, I think uh, it's a good bet. I, I, and I think it's um, I think Ether will significantly outperform uh, the value of the U.S. dollar, while the U.S. dollar will probably decline in value by five to 10 percent a year for the next 10 years. I think Ether, on average, noting that it's in a, a, a very volatile asset, I think Ether will probably average 25 to 45 percent uh, uh, appreciation in value. Uh, over the next 10 years. There's no guarantee of that, of course, but when you look at the economics of it, it's it's quite compelling. Something that not a lot of people know is that when Ethereum launches its new version in mid-September, coming up in a, just a few weeks, uh, it's going from 4.2% annual issuance to 0.2% annual issuance. It's reducing its issuance by 90%. Imagine if you know, instead of being at 10% inflation, like, you know, much of America is right now and much of Europe is right now. Uh, imagine if you went down 90% in a week. That's what's about to happen to Ethereum next month, coming up in just a few days. Uh, and so we're excited about that. It's going to get rid of all the miners. It's going to be 99.95% more uh, environmentally friendly and use that much less electricity. We're going to have a higher security, better security model than the proof of work older model uh, that Bitcoin still uses. Um, and so we're bullish on ETH. We're super bullish about the ETH merge. Um, we're, we're super bullish about proof of stake. And we think that while ETH might trade at 1700 today, there's no guarantee. But my personal expectation is that it'll, it'll, it'll eventually surpass Bitcoin and that it'll eventually surpass over $10,000 per ETH token. I, I really do expect that to happen over the next four years. Yes, I, the inflation rate dropping from about 4% to 0.2% is a very significant thing because it's, it's going to throttle the supply. And I think you've seen that with the halving of Bitcoin. Whenever you get a reduction in, in supply, you're going to get these uh, these these jumps in price. So I think it's, your analysis is is fairly on the spot. I, I just want to talk about the the issue of drawdowns, because for institutional investors, this is just no go, a no go area. They hate drawdowns. So I think from what you're saying, you set out to try and solve this problem through your fund of funds approach. And you've done it by blending a variety of different investment styles, a variety of different funds. 
are, are the institutions responding to this? Do they understand that there are ways that you can actually minimize the fantastic sort of drawdowns and volatility that they associate with cryptos? Yes. Well, there's two things to understand. Let's first talk about drawdowns and then let's talk about the institutions and, and why they're coming into this fund of fund model. So, you know, if you lose 20 percent, it you know, if you if you go from a million down to 800,000, you lose 20 percent, you know, then what percentage do you need to get back to the million? Well, now you need a gain of 25 percent to get back to your million. It, it's not that big a difference. But now let's say you lose 50 percent, you know, like many traders did in the first half of this year, your million goes down to five hundred thousand dollars. Now you're going to need a hundred percent gain to get back to a million, right? So now it starts compounding. And what happens if you lose eighty percent? Like, like, um, let's say uh, the Arca Digital uh, Token Fund did in the first half of this year, according to their fact sheet. Um, you know, then you need a four hundred percent gain uh, in order to uh, break even. Uh, your one million turns into two hundred thousand, and then to get back to just where you started, you need a four hundred percent gain. So a lot of these token funds that are, you know, promoting their 250, 300% gain in 2021, you know, is great, but how how valuable is a 250% gain if it's going to be followed by an 85% loss the next year? And so you really have to look at how to smooth out your returns. And if you can get a 40, 50, 60, 70% up year and then in a down market you know, be invested in a diversified portfolio of quantitative trading funds that are still going to be up or have a high likelihood of being up while everything else is down, then you're maintaining your principle and you're you're living to fight another day. Um, and so our funds averaged last year, this is before we invested in them, but the same ones that we, we the 13 that we selected, they averaged 84% in 2021. So that was a good year. You know, that's more than what Bitcoin did last year. Um, and then of course, they're up you know, 10.2% in the first half of this year net. And so with that, that that's great. You know, that's a fantastic result. Um, and so that that's what we do. Um, we, we've designed a fund that ideally is designed, if it works properly, to reduce drawdowns. We might still have a negative 5% month, a negative 10% month now and then, you know, but we, we haven't, our funds historically haven't had a negative quarter going back four years. They may in the future, you know, past is not the predictor of the future, but you can you can at least utilize it to draw um, a good portfolio together. And so now what we're seeing is institutions are starting to get wise to this and they're starting to say, wow, you know, the hedge fund industry in the equities market took off in the 80s and 90s. Um, the high frequency trading took off in the early 2000s on Wall Street. Funds were competing to be physically closest to the trading floors in New York and in Chicago. And now um, that same technology that revolutionized Wall Street in the 1990s and 2000s is now come to a whole new asset class of digital assets where there's a lot of inefficiency. There's a lot of people that don't know yet what they're doing. Uh, there's a lot of uh, investor interest in being part of this new technological wave. Um, and so those institutions are looking for exposure um, but they they may not yet have their own ability to to pull together a, a, their own research team. And so, you know, for the largest institutions in the world, they'll pull together their own digital asset team. They'll pull together their own crypto fund of funds, you know, but for a mid-sized institution that's maybe managing a few hundred million dollars, 
couple billion dollars, something like that, that doesn't want to spin up a, a specialized crypto quant research team to evaluate all the different funds out there. Being able to allocate 10 million, 25 million, 50 million to a crypto fund of funds like what we do makes a lot of sense to them. You know, of course, we have an auditor, you know, we have a fund administrator. So we're sort of doing it in the regulated way that allows them to allocate. So I, I, it's definitely happening. And it's exciting to see as we get into the 2024 bull market. I think it's going to be um, an order of magnitude bigger than it was in the 2020-2021 bull market. And just talk about the fees for a minute. You, those results that you gave are, are fantastic. Net of fees. So what are your fees? Well, we charge a two and 20, which is standard for a hedge fund. Um, we, we um, you know, sometimes, well, not sometimes, between now and the end of the quarter, people that get in by the end of September uh, we're doing two and 15 just as an initial incentive to for some of the early LPs that are coming in. But two and 20 will, will probably be the fee structure for quite some time. Um, that's worked out well for us. It's sort of the standard in the industry. And then what we do is we negotiate in bulk uh, and aggregate all the investor capital so that when we go to the hedge funds we invest in, we'll often be able to get better terms, uh, lower fees, better liquidity. Um, than someone um, that went in for themselves. And so, you know, we're able to sort of make you those fees back in some cases um, through our fee discounts and also provide better diversification and, and hopefully better selection than an individual investor would be able to do on their own. Okay, so that's 2% annual admin fee and 20% uh, profit share fee. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. Uh, final question, Ryan. What is the mood of institutional investors with regard to cryptos at the moment? You know, they've, they sat on the sidelines, most of them, for most of the last, well, decade. Um, and some of them being quite, uh, you know, what do you say, derogatory about cryptos. But they are now, most of the banks we see, even in this country, they do have blockchain teams. They're starting to pay attention because they see this thing is not a flash in the pan. It's not going away. Is this your experience? Yes. You know, there's a bifurcation in the market right now. I think there's still um, large institutions, you know, just to pick on one like the HSBC Bank that's sort of anti-crypto. Uh, we have certain regulators like Christine Lagarde at the European Union that are sort of anti-crypto or, you know, Elizabeth Warren in the United States who are anti-crypto. They tend to, to not really understand um, that digital assets are uh, simply a modernization of traditional assets that allow any type of financial asset to trade 24-7. And I really do think distributed ledgers and 24-7 markets are the future of, of global finance. I think that's where everything's going. I think stable coins as well as central bank digital currencies are the future of money. Uh, and I think um, programmable money that is issued by decentralized organizations will compete with nation state issued money over the next 15 or 20 years. It's not going to be overnight, but it is going to be uh, a major macro geopolitical shift over the next 20 years. Um, and so I do think institutions like BlackRock um, and many, many others um, are now making huge bets. Um, venture, the venture capital investment in the space was $30 billion in the first half of 2022. That's more than in the entirety of 2021. And so for there to be more venture capital money coming in in the first six months of this year than in the bull market last year, um, we're, we're seeing a lot of money pour in. And that's funding a lot of developers and a lot of innovation. 
And while it, I, I think this is a decade long play, I think it's going to take till 2030 for this whole thing to play out. But I think by 2030, we're going to see uh, a revolutionization of the entire fintech sector with digital assets and distributed ledger at the central, central point. So I'm bullish, as you can tell. By programmable money, you mean money that you can attach a certain condition to. For example, if you don't spend this within the week, it's going to just disappear, that type of thing. Well, by programmable money, I mean, um, you know, things like Ethereum. Um, Ethereum has 119 million supply. It's going to start going down after the merge. Uh, it looks like it's going to be at a, a in, an issuance rate initially of about 0.1.2%, but it'll probably turn negative uh, pretty soon. Um, and so we now have, you know, when you have the amount of M1 money supply in the U.S. Um, growing by 10, 15, 20% a year. Uh, and then you have um, a decentralized currency like Ether, um, which is actually going to be declining in supply, making it more valuable over time. I think we're going to start to see certain nation states like we've already seen uh, in the early stages with El Salvador and Central African Republic making uh, digital currencies legal tender within their borders. I think that trend is going to accelerate in the 2030s. Um, and so I, I don't think the battle is between the U.S. and China. Um, I think the battle is between um, nation state currency versus non-nation state currency. And, you know, no one knows what's going to win yet. But I think if you look ahead 30 or 40 years, I think there's a real good chance that decentralized issue, non-nation state issued currency will eventually become the global standard. I did say the final question, but here it is. Um, do you see a time when... Ethereum is the largest cryptocurrency. They, they, they call it the flippening, right? When when Ethereum overtakes Bitcoin. Do you see a time when that could happen? Yes, I, I actually see a very specific uh, path toward that happening by the middle of 2025. So um, Bitcoin operates in four-year cycles. Um, Ethereum is just now, because of its moving off of proof of work, um, disrupting that four-year cycle. So we're probably going to see some improvement in Ethereum price over the next few months related to the merge proof of stake transition. So by the time the next bull market gets in the full swing, um, if the proof of stake transition is successful, if Ethereum is successfully upgraded with the L2s continuing to perform and the, sh and the sharding, which will make, make it 64 times faster in 2023, I do think that by the middle of 2025, and certainly by the end of 2025, there's a high probability that Ethereum will be worth more than Bitcoin, primarily because of its programmability and how many apps uh, build on top of Ethereum, which means that you have to use Ether in order to use the blockchain. Whereas with Bitcoin, there really aren't as many applications built on top of it because it's not a programmable blockchain. So I think that's the future. Uh, and then the question becomes, well, can anything be Ether? Um, and so I'm keeping my eye on, you know, Avalanche, Solana, uh, Near, uh, Phantom, and, and a few others that are that are, you know, potential Ethereum killers down the road. Fascinating stuff. I think we'll leave it there. Ryan Alice, publisher of CoinStack and partner at Amphibian Capital. Thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.
MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.